Broadcasting to New York City, Los Angeles, Chicago, Sydney, London, and around the world, this is Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us here on Trumpet Radio Live, 101.3 KPCG, and online at kpcg.fm. Coming up on today's program, quite a few stories to look at, including a really interesting report about the role of big government. The bigger government gets, the less religious people are. We'll take a look at that and more coming up on this edition of Trumpet Radio Live on 101.3 KPCG. Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for joining us today online, kpcg.fm, live link of the trumpet.com. This is Trumpet Radio Live, and we're over the air in Edmond, Oklahoma City at 101.3 KPCG. I'm Dwight Falk with you here today on a beautiful Thursday. Plenty of uh, sunshine today and uh, in the 60s, so really nice uh, spring weather. Hopefully, some rain coming this weekend. Uh, we need it. We have a lake outside of the studio here, uh, and it's dropped down a fair bit. You can see the the brown dirt and uh, see where the water used to be. So it's dropped a fair bit. And uh, we have a story coming up in a bit here on KPCG about how the um, uh, drought is affecting uh, over a third of the United States. So there's quite a bit of drought going on, and people are starting to wonder if they're going to have to uh, ration water and so forth. But anyway, we do need some rain, and uh, hopefully we'll get some this weekend. There's a pretty good chance of it, so we'll see how that goes. Hopefully it's nice where you are, and thanks for tuning in today. Uh, One of the stories to look at this morning, you remember the um, situation that occurred recently with Southwest Airlines, that flight where uh, the the window broke because of the, the engine exploding, and the woman got sucked out and uh, partially, and the oxygen masks fell and all of that. Well, a lot of people were tweeting pictures from the plane, and you've probably seen those on the news. And uh, this is in relation to uh, some of those photos. It says, almost everyone in a photo of Southwest emergency landing wore their oxygen mask wrong, according to a former flight attendant. And so I thought that was really interesting. I, I've... You know, we've all been in that situation where you're on a plane and the flight attendants are giving you the information at the beginning, the emergency information, and it doesn't seem like most people pay attention to them. I found myself not really paying attention to what they're saying. I feel like I sort of know or or it wouldn't be that complicated, but I have had the thought that, well, if I really needed to know what to do, would I actually understand uh, in, in a moment of crisis, especially how to do something like put an oxygen mask on. Uh, This individual that used to be a flight attendant uh, sent out a tweet with this uh, picture from the Southwest Airline flight, and it said, People, listen to your flight attendants. Almost everyone in this photo is wearing their mask wrong. They say, put down the phone, stop with the selfies, and listen. Cover your nose and mouth. 
And so what people were doing incorrectly in the photo, at least those that are seen, is they were only covering their mouths. They weren't covering their nose and their mouth. Seems like a simple thing, but it would be easy to forget, especially in a time of crisis. And, uh, you know, we can all be sort of uh, 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 lemmings, as they say, and go with the crowd. And if we see people, you know, not covering their mouth, we might think, oh, I guess you don't cover your nose. Uh, Or just covering the mouth and not the mouth and the nose. So it would be easy enough to do that, I think. And uh, anyway, so a little bit of a, uh, (laughs) I don't know, abrupt sort of uh, tweet there. Uh, from the uh, former flight attendant telling everyone to listen and having it in all caps. But a good point, because uh, if we ever found ourselves in an emergency, we would want to know how to properly put on our oxygen masks. So I thought that was sort of interesting. It's easy to feel like yeah, we wouldn't have a problem on a flight, but but it could happen. Here's another story today. This is uh, coming out of the U.K. Queen puts forward Sun as next head of Commonwealth. This is from the AFP. Queen Elizabeth II, the head of the Commonwealth, opened the Commonwealth Summit for what may be the last time on Thursday. She's a 92, coming up, uh, I guess, in a few days. And uh, she, was vo- she voiced hope that her son would be allowed to carry on her role. And uh, she welcomed leaders from the 53 Commonwealth nations, mostly former colonies, to Buckingham Palace for two days of talks that will include discussions on trade, marine protection, and tackling cybercrime. And she said, It is my sincere wish that the Commonwealth will continue to offer stability and continuity for future generations and will decide that one day the Prince of Wales should carry on the important work started by my father in 1949. And so she's referring there to her son, of course, Prince Charles, hopefully taking over for her at some point. On the closing day on Friday, leaders are expected to discuss who should follow Queen Elizabeth in the role. So it's something they have to think about. She is going to be 92 here on Saturday. And uh, they say the position is not hereditary, but Prince Charles, who is also the heir to the thrones of 16 Commonwealth nations, is expected to get the nod despite some unease among ardent Republicans. So Prince Charles is 69, by the way. Uh, I guess uh, when your mother, who is the queen, lives a long time up into the 90s, then uh, his opportunity there is uh, doesn't come around until he's older. So he's already 69 years old. I guess I hadn't thought about how old he was, but he's uh, getting older as well. And so, uh, but again, the queen there turns 92 on Saturday. So she hopes Prince Charles can... Uh, uh, be the next leader, the next head of the Commonwealth uh, and uh, all of those uh, nations that uh, come to that Commonwealth Summit. Here's an interesting one about the drought mentioned earlier, and uh, this is from the Pew Charitable Trusts. If you live in the uh, south and southwest of the United States and a few other areas, you may be experiencing some drought. I think we are here, although according to the map, in central Oklahoma, we're not in the most severe stage by any sense, uh, but we are definitely in some drought. It says drought returns to huge swaths of U.S., fueling fears of a thirsty future. Less than eight months after Hurricane Harvey pelted the Texas Gulf Coast with torrential rainfall, drought has returned to Texas and other parts of the West, 
southwest, and the southeast, rekindling old worries for residents who dealt with earlier waves of dry spells and once again forcing state governments to reckon with how to keep the water flowing. How strange, right? It wasn't that long ago that Hurricane Harvey was absolutely flooding the Texas Gulf Coast area, and we all remember the footage and the pictures of Houston having quite a bit of water and uh, highways being underwater and boats going to deliver uh, or rescue people, try to deliver them to safety. And so that wasn't that long ago, and then here we are uh, with drought again. So extremes on both sides. It says nearly a third of the continental United States was in drought as of April 10th, just a few days ago, more than three times the coverage uh, last year. And the specter of a drought-ridden summer has focused renewed urgency on state and local conservation efforts, some of which would fundamentally alter Americans' behavior in how they use water. So they always start looking at how are people using water and does it need to be limited in some way to try to prevent uh, a water shortage in case droughts continue. To understand the potential dangers of a drought, U.S. officials might look halfway around the world, they write, to parched Cape Town, South Africa, where residents this year faced a crisis that seems straight from science fiction. After three years of drought, the city of four million spent months united in a struggle to fend off day zero, as they called it, which was when Cape Town was projected to become the world's first major urban center to run out of water. We just don't think about that too often, running out of water. Uh, Some parts of the world, of course, they focus on it more because it is something that they do face. But here in the West and in some of these more prosperous regions, the idea of just running out of water is pretty uh, far from our thinking oftentimes. But it is something that they've they've been considering there in Cape Town. Residents skimped on dishwashing and laundry. They took uh, many showers, washed their hands with sanitizer, flushed the toilet with leftover shower water, and made numerous other sacrifices to daily routines. Uh, It's something that we probably don't think about too often, just going into, say, the kitchen and getting uh, water out of the tap or uh, taking a shower or something like that. Uh, But, uh, you know, if there's not enough water to do it, then we definitely would have to change our routines in uh, quite significant ways. So they've been doing that in Cape Town. And uh, the objective that they had was to cut individual water consumption to 50 liters a day. That's 13.2 gallons, and that's uh, far below the U.S. average of 80 to 100 gallons. Hundreds lined up daily uh, for water rations as the city developed, or sorry, the city deployed law enforcement officers, widely dubbed the world's first water police, to enforce restrictions. That gets to be sort of an interesting um, situation for the officers and for the police or for the people that they're serving they have to go out there and uh you know i guess uh, enforce water restrictions and that could make for some uh difficult situations so uh, especially now they haven't had to do that here in the u.s at least not in this way but you just think about how uh, how the police are really uh disliked in quite a few uh communities already and if they had to go out there and tell people to stop using so much water, you can imagine the uh, the turmoil that would cause. So it hasn't come to that yet, but they, they've had to do it in Cape Town. So it's an example of something that could happen. 
Now in Cape Town there, the Day of Reckoning was originally expected to fall in mid-April, but was postponed to May and then to June. So they're not at that uh, Day of Reckoning or that Day Zero, I think they called it, where they run out of uh, water. And hopefully they don't, but uh, it gives some. It gives a, a look at uh, gives us a look at what could happen uh, with an extended drought. They say one critical resource threatened by shortages here in the U.S. is the Colorado River system, which includes parts of seven states and provides water for up to 40 million people. In the absence of timely action to ensure sustainability, the U.S. Bureau of Reclamation said in a 2012 assessment of the river basin that, quote, there exists a strong potential for significant imbalances between water supply and demand in coming decades. And of course, a lot of that then has to do with how much uh, water we get in the first place, whether there's a drought or not. Lake Mead, a reservoir sprawling 120 miles behind the Hoover Dam in Nevada, is less than half full after years of drought. The reservoir, which is part of the Colorado River system, serves nearly 25 million people in Nevada, Arizona, and California. So if you've been out to any of those areas, uh, Las Vegas or places like that, it's a pretty large uh, city. And there's a lot there, a lot of people there, but at the same time, it's dry. And uh, there's not uh, accessible water unless it's coming through the uh, water system and uh, the Hoover Dam and that area, which, of course, is a beautiful, uh, <laughs> really beautiful in terms of just the construction and how amazing it is that they made that, uh, the ingenuity of man. But uh, uh, as I said, Lake Mead there is less than half full after years of drought. So they could be in a, sort of a, a bad situation there if, if a drought were to continue. And uh, they have a map showing the United States being nearly a third of it in uh, drought. That's the contiguous U.S., and that's affecting more than 60 million people uh, living in those areas hit by drought, and that's uh, as of early April. And the real uh, severe areas are in um, western Oklahoma, through the Panhandle, uh, into Texas there, and uh, then into some of the neighboring states heading west. So that's where it's the heaviest, of course. Then there's some drought in California and other areas. And then there's some drought on the east coast, including Florida, and uh, some of those other states in that area. And then even up into Wisconsin, there's some drought. Of course, I got a lot of snow recently, so maybe that'll change that. But then in the Dakotas as well, some drought conditions. But again, the most severe drought being here in the uh, south and southwest areas. So extreme, uh, extreme drought and exceptional drought uh, being the two highest categories. And then, of course, with the high winds we've had and the and, uh, of course, this ongoing dry dry conditions. Uh, there have been wildfires here in Oklahoma and other places. But, again, there's there might be some rain on the way in the weekend, so that would be much needed. But uh, drought is affecting a third of the United States. We have a really good book at thetrumpet.com on uh, why natural disasters, and it talks about some of the uh, weather conditions and other disasters that do occur from time to time. And people will often wonder, why does that happen? especially if they're thinking about it in relation to God. Why would, why would that occur? And uh, so that's a really important booklet to get uh, at this time. And whenever you see, say, droughts or storms or anything like that, uh, it's important to look at that. And, of course, don't forget, I mean, we had that massive hurricane season last year, 
and uh, saw right up earlier saying that they're they're uh, you know starting to evaluate this upcoming hurricane season and what that's going to be like. It's easy to forget about those disasters; they pop in and out of the headlines. But uh, you know, that that uh, Hurricane Harvey in Houston was massive, as well as some of the other storms. So, uh, in some places, they're still re- trying to recover from that. You've uh, heard a lot about this uh, book from James Comey. That uh, book went on sale on Tuesday, and uh, it's been talked about a lot on the Trumpet Daily Radio Show, um, mainly, I guess, his interviews about the book. And, uh, of course, James Comey is the former FBI director, and he really uh, goes after President Trump in that book, apparently. And it is receiving uh, mixed reviews from those that are buying it. I know too much about what he's been saying and I want to learn more, and I don't like what he's, how he's been putting down Trump, because I think it's undignified. I like what he says about Trump, but not how he describes Trump. I don't think that's in anybody's best interest, and it doesn't help. I sincerely believe that even though Russia had a part in this, I believe that Comey put the nail in the coffin, and this whole administration getting in is his fault. I'm not interested in the controversy. I'm not. I'm just, it's a topic, and I just want to be informed. The truth about what he is saying about a president, whether in fact uh, is believable or not, so that's why I want to read the book and be able to tell. Uh, how we feel about what he's saying about the president and what the president is saying about him. Do you know how hard somebody has to work to become the director of the FBI? Um, Probably harder than a reality TV star. So uh, I feel like he's coming from a a place of experience and education um, that lends itself to, to greater believability. Uh, Comey has offered a uh, scathing appraisal of the man who fired him as FBI chief in uh, the book entitled A Higher Loyalty. Not sure who he's being loyal to in this case, but uh, he says he has a higher loyalty. Comey cites what he calls, quote, some evidence of obstruction of justice in President Donald Trump's actions and speculates, speculates, that Russians might have dirt on the president. So a lot of speculation there. Uh, president Trump has struck back, of course, branding Comey a criminal. And uh, President Trump fired Comey in May 2017 amid the FBI's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 presidential election. So there's been a lot uh, about that in the news, and uh, James Comey's been back. And uh, relevant, I guess, because of his comments and uh, the book that he wrote and is selling. I think they printed 850,000 copies. They're expecting to sell those. And so he'll he'll make a bit, I guess. But uh, anyway, it's interesting just to see uh, the reaction that people do have to it. And uh, again, I'll point you back to the Trumpet Daily Radio show from this week. There's been, a f- I think it's been three programs that have focused specifically on some of the uh, Comey comments. And really important to look at that. Uh, listen to those programs and get uh, just the needed perspective on what is uh, going on there uh, with uh, 
really they call it the deep state here in the United States, and uh, there's a lot of activity there. So make sure you listen for those uh, Trump Daily Radio shows. You can get the archives. They're available online at kpcg.fm, and you can find them at thetrumpet.com as well. And uh, download them and listen to them there at, uh, whenever you get a chance to. Speaking of books, people like to uh, cash in, I guess, on uh, books if they feel like they can sell them. And uh, Parkland survivors David Hogg and Lauren Hogg are going to publish a book titled Hashtag Never Again. And uh, this is uh, a book that they have coming out. David Hogg and Lauren Hogg students at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School and survivors of February's deadly mass shooting in Parkland, Florida, have signed a deal with Random House for a book to be published in June, uh, EW has confirmed. And uh, so they're looking to uh, get this book out there. They're in the limelight, David Hogg especially. He's uh, quite a lightning rod and uh, for controversy. It says the siblings have been leaders in the gun control movement that took shape among students in the aftermath of the Parkland shooting. Their book, Hashtag Never Again, is described as, quote, a statement of generational purpose and a moving portrait of the birth of a new movement. Of course, it's not really a new movement. It's just something that's been sort of co-opted and uh, the students have been used to keep the to get that gun uh, control movement going more and more. Uh, the book will explore their efforts, taking on some of the most powerful forces in Washington and beyond, it says, and will detail their commitment to new legislation aiming to prevent future tragedies. That all sounds pretty good, uh, but they say that uh, they're taking on some of the most powerful forces in Washington and beyond. Well, they have some of the most powerful forces in Washington and beyond supporting them. That's how come they're in the limelight. That's how come they're able to get out there and have these marches and and get all this airtime and be on CNN and these other places because the powerful forces are actually behind them to a large extent. And this is what David Hogg said uh, in the about the book, I guess, or in a statement. It said, he says, In times of struggle and tragedy, we can come together in love and compassion for each other. And I thought, well, that sounds good, but I haven't heard a lot of love and compassion from him talking about... Uh, people that he deems to be his enemies, whether it be people that are, are uh, gun right advocates or Republicans or the NRA. He's talking about coming together in love and compassion. There, he doesn't have any love and compassion that I've heard. I'm just going off of what he says publicly. And so that, that sounds like a nice statement, but I haven't seen him practice it. He said, we can see each other not as political symbols, but as human beings. Does he see the Does he see the NRA as human beings, or does he see uh, the Republicans as human beings, or people that want to have guns as human beings, or does he see them as political symbols? I think he sees them as political symbols that he's attacking. Uh, at least that's what I've seen. And again, I'm just going off of you know what they what they put on the television, but that's that's what I've seen. And they said, and then, of course, there will be times when we simply must fight for what is right. Well, but again, it's it's his opinion of what is right, and those that are uh, backing and supporting him is their opinion of what is right. And they're going to fight for that, but um, there's another side to it as well. 
there is a side to it that uh, thinks that they're in the wrong and then they're using this tragedy, this uh, shooting, to try to push through uh, legislation that maybe wouldn't be in the best interest of everyone. So there's a lot to think about there, but they have a book coming out. And uh, I guess they're trying to strike while the iron is hot, as they say, and see if they can sell some books and get their ideas out there. Well, you might like to take uh, walks, which is very good in a lot of ways. There's a lot of benefits to walking. And uh, there's been plenty of reports about how sitting for for an extended period often is not the best. It can cause health problems. And so walking is a really good uh, and natural thing to do. We're designed to walk around, and uh, there's a lot of benefits to it. And uh, But some people now are taking it to uh, sort of an odd extreme, I guess. And this is from the San Francisco Chronicle. I don't know if you've heard of this. It's called Forest Bathing. It takes tree-hugging to new extremes, it says. And now this isn't, it doesn't uh, have anything to do with water. It's uh, bathing in nature, I guess, if you want to put it that way. They say there's a revolutionary new way to walk through the forest very slowly. Take a few steps. That's far enough. Now sit down and talk it over with the person next to you for a long time. So this author went on one of these uh, forest bathing adventures, and they're writing about it. And uh, it's a movement that I guess is catching on in some ways, but uh, there's some things about it that are sort of odd, to say the least. Uh, They say it's a new age thing in Sonoma County, walking very slowly through the forest while thinking about walking very slowly through the forest. It's a full-blown movement, the author says. And I like the way they write. They're they're pretty uh, humorous, I think. Uh, They say the people who do this call it forest bathing. It doesn't involve actual bathing, the kind with water. It's figurative bathing. You soak in the wonders of the forest Take your time, a whole lot of it, and bring a cushion so you can sit there and think about things. I love, personally, just I love walking through a forested area. Uh, in Oklahoma, we don't have a whole lot of that. There's some areas that are you can do that in. But a forested area is wonderful to walk through, especially it's like the Pacific Northwest, places like that. It's one of my favorite, favorite things to do. But this is getting... This is getting a bit extreme in in some of what they're doing. Uh, Amos Clifford, he's one of the people, or he's the man in charge of this, actually. He said, it feels good to sit here and not go anyplace. And uh, he's making money doing this. He sells a book about it, and it's $15, Your Guide to Forest Bathing. doesn't seem like there'd be that much to it. I think we all know how to walk through the woods. But anyway, he wants it to be kind of a spiritual journey, I guess, in some ways, as he would see it. He said, the slower you go, the more you experience. We're always in such a hurry to go from here to there that we never fully experience here. (laughs) So uh, sort of interesting thought. I mean, I think there's some validity in in a part of that. that, uh, You know, you don't want to become over rushed or overly uh, stressed. And uh, but at the same time, it gets it gets a little more extreme, as you'll see. He said, uh, it says, Clifford has turned his slow walks into a cottage industry. He leads $50 forest bathing treks for newbies. He teaches a $3,400 forest bathing workshop for wannabe leaders. $50 to follow some guy through the woods? Um, unless I'm lost and I need to get out of there, I don't think I'd be willing to uh, spend that. 
And then $3,400 for, for uh, people to become these uh, forest bathing leaders. Well, anyway, he's, he's uh, making some money, apparently. Uh, this uh, gentleman lectures and writes, From Sonoma County, the spiritual home of forest bathing, he flies around the world in jets to tell people they're moving too fast. <laughs> so the author's pretty funny in the way that they're uh, putting this together. But I mean, here's where it gets uh, bizarre. I mean, walking through the woods is, is fun, it's nice, and it's it's good in a lot of ways. Uh, or, you know, just getting out into nature, it's a very good thing. But but then he gets bizarre with it. He says uh, uh, he wants everyone to find a tree that's your twin. How would you choose? There's so many out there. He says, talk to your tree. Ask your twin about yourself. Find out all you can from your tree. Put your hand on your tree and take your time to get to know your tree. So that's what you get for 50 bucks is this guy tells you to talk to trees. Um, trees don't talk. <laughs> they move around in the wind and they can make some sounds that way. And uh, I've enjoyed, you know, uh, laying back and looking up at a tall tree. I and mean, it's, really, it's really quite amazing to see the creation. But they don't talk. They don't have, obviously, any capability to do that. I know that's not a news flash for listeners, but still, some of these movements get so bizarre that, that uh, uh, you know, some people just go with this and they think there's something to it. And so this author went along and he said, uh, it was about a dozen people. They walked around slowly talking to trees. So there you go. Like purple flowers, the trees remained anonymous. So uh, he was talking about some purple flowers. They were trying to figure out what they were earlier in the write-up. Uh, but he said, we didn't have to know what kind they were, we, we, only what was on their minds. So they didn't even know what, what actually types of trees they were, but they were supposed to uh, have this conversation with these trees. And uh, after 20 minutes, the author says, of human tree conversation, much of it one-sided, <laughs> or all of it, uh, it says, we forest bathers returned to the same spot and sat down in the same circle to share our conversations with our trees. So you're supposed to come back and tell other people what um, the tree said to you. And, of course, you you know, it's peer pressure, so you're not going to want to be the one that says, yeah, I didn't say anything, actually. And so people, they said, no, their trees had talked to them. And uh, one of the forest bathers said, my tree asked me why I was so afraid. <laughs> Maybe because you were talking to a tree. And then another forest bather said, my tree said it thought we could grow together. Mm. So just strange. I thought, I, I have seen this before. I know it's popular uh, to some extent in Asian cultures. Uh, it's They do it in China, I think, and a few other places. I've seen some write-ups on it. And, of course, so now it's it's happening in San Francisco area as well. Uh, and, well, or in some of those areas out there in California. And it's, again, walking through the woods is a wonderful thing. It's it's wonderful to get out there and to to uh, to get some exercise and to to be able to think and be able to have some uh, a conversation with some friends or family. It's wonderful to do that, but now they're taking it to this bizarre extreme level where they're trying to uh, you know talk to trees. So I don't think any of our uh, listeners are probably going to get into anything like that, but it is worth noting that it's happening. People are doing it, and it's. Um, it's again, it's just a bizarre movement, and uh, people are actually paying money for it. So, really strange, but it did uh, catch my attention because, it, I, like I said, I know it's been popular over in some of the Asian countries, and now it's here in the U.S. too. Uh, hard to pull this off, I guess, if you live in a, uh, 
uh, a region without uh, trees. They'll have to be. They'll have to be the prairie walkers, uh, prairie bathing, right, or uh, desert bathing, or whatever region a person is in. Uh, but walking is good, and there are benefits to it. Uh, some of the benefits include healthy weight, uh, prevent or manage various conditions, including heart disease, high blood pressure, and type two diabetes. Strengthens the bones and the muscles, improves your mood, and improves your balance and coordination. So we are designed, we are created to move around and uh, get the benefits from that, but uh, not in the way that they're trying to do it with forest bathing. Interesting story. I thought you might uh, find it interesting to see what's going on in some parts of the world out there in uh, California. But uh, California actually is really an interesting state because very liberal, of course, and... and, uh, if you were to look at a lot of the politicians and a lot of the media, you'd think that you know California is really almost 100% liberal. It's not even close to the case. This write-up from Fox News says most Californians back more deportations and nearly half support the travel ban, according to a new survey. But they don't, you know, they just don't have much of a voice. It doesn't seem like coming out of California there. At least not if you believe most of the media. It says an overwhelming majority of Californians want to deport more illegal immigrants and nearly half support President Trump's travel ban aimed at reducing terrorism, according to a new survey, and that comes from the University of California at Berkeley's Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society. But in reporting the findings of the statewide December 2017 survey, the Haas Institute on Wednesday appeared to put a liberal spin on some of the results. For example, the headline of its news release reads, Majority of Californians Oppose Border Wall Support Racial Inclusion. And that seems like a headline that you would uh, see pretty often. They say, but the actual data says that in California, 66% reject the idea that the U.S.-Mexico border wall is an important immigration policy priority. Not that they oppose the wall entirely. So... You know, they ask one question, but then they phrase the answer to the question in a different way than than the way that you know it was asked originally. So the the data is being uh, skewed there. The same results also demonstrate that only fifty four percent, or slightly more than half, of Californians have positive views of Muslims, and only fifty one percent quote oppose banning people from majority Muslim countries from entering the United States. Meanwhile, 59% find it important to increase deportations of those here without documentation. Nearly 80%, however, support a pathway to citizenship for so-called dreamers. And 67% think undocumented immigrants should be able to purchase health insurance on the California State Exchange. The Haas Institute concedes in its news release that Quote, Californians hold some contradictory and troubling views. Troubling in their minds because it's against what they were hoping to find. And so, yeah, there there are some contradictory views, and that's like a lot of places in the U.S. And if we look at the the national averages, as far as, like, if you're just going to look at who supports the president, it's about a 50-50 split. But the media coverage, I forget the numbers, but it's been over, I think, 90% negative. But really, if you look at the actual numbers, the people are about 50-50 on it and um, and uh, are probably that way in quite a few issues. So very divided nation in a lot of ways. And um, 
if you were to listen to the media, you'd think it was, you know, most everyone agreed with their opinions, but most, uh, or, or, or at least half do not in most cases, and sometimes it could be more than that. So pretty interesting news there out of uh, California, and uh, it's easy to think that they just are going along exactly with, you know, everything the way that the media says they do, uh, the liberal agenda, but but a lot of them do not. So again, that's why uh, there's uh, some some people saying that they should split California into several states, two or three. But again, uh, that would have a lot to do then with uh, voting and, uh, you know, how many votes each area would have. It's very political in terms of splitting up a state like that. So don't know that they would do it. I would be stunned if they did, but but then again, um, things do happen. So it's getting a little bit more traction. Here's a really uh, interesting write-up from the Miami Herald. Uh, government versus God. People are less religious when government is bigger, research says. And uh, so really, uh, you know, it's communism. Communism seeks to take over everything. Everything's government-controlled. And what do you see in communist uh, countries? Well, they're atheist. I think the Soviet Union was that way. Because people have to rely on the government like it's God, and therefore they don't have a, a relationship with God. And again, that's not what the founding fathers wanted when they established the United States. And but we do see government expanding in general in the U.S., especially over the last eight years. But uh, it's still still large, and and uh, people are looking for these uh, social uh, welfare programs. And as this uh, study points out, when people are relying on the government for their needs, then it it takes the place of God in their lives. Uh, The write-up says, researchers call it an exchange model of religion. If people can get what they need from the government, whether it's health care, education, welfare, they're less likely to turn to a divine power for help, according to the theory. And uh, that is, uh, I think, pretty accurate. They say, but are people actually more likely to drop religion in places where governments provide more services and stability? In a well, it's interesting they say more services and stability and stability, but really if you look at the areas that are very much government controlled, it's controlled, but it's not really serving the community. It's serving itself first, and then the people usually get the scraps, whatever's left. It might be consistent. <laughs> in that uh, people are living pretty low, but uh, I think that's kind of the wrong way to phrase it. They don't really have, they don't provide more services and stability. And does Cuba provide more services and stability for its people? Uh, certainly it does not. But the write-up says in a new paper, psychology researchers crunched the numbers and found that better government, or uh, in this case, bigger government services, were in fact linked to lower levels of strong religious beliefs. Those findings held true in states across the U.S. and in countries around the world, researchers said. The article, titled Religion as an Exchange System, The Interchangeability of God and Government in a Provider Role. That was published April the 12th in Personality and Social Psychology Bulletin. So if you don't have a subscription to that, this may be news to you. I don't. I saw it in the Miami Herald. 
authors Mirren Zuckerman and Chen Li of the University of Rochester and Ed Diener of the Universities of Utah and Virginia wrote that their findings suggest that if the function that religiosity, that's not a word I use every day, if the function of religiosity provides, uh, can be acquired from some other source, the allure of religion will diminish. So in other words, if you don't, if people feel like they don't have to rely on God because the government's there to provide their needs, then they're less inclined to seek God. And that is what they have found out is actually the case. The researchers also found something of a staggered link between the government services on offer and levels of religiosity in a given state. Between 2008 and 2013 in the U.S., for example, better government services in a specific year predicted lower religiosity one to two years later, researchers wrote. If a secular entity provides what people need, they will be less likely to seek help from God or other supernatural entities. Government is the most likely secular provider, the researchers concluded. And they said, we showed in two cross-sectional analysis, one using world countries and one using states in the United States, that better government services were related to lower levels of religiosity. So again, if people are able to rely on the government they feel like, or they're able to get what they need from the government, then they don't feel like they need to have God in their lives. And so the way that the researchers measure the government service levels um, in relation to religion, uh, they used a, a mix of World Bank, World Factbook, U.S. Census, and Gallup data and tried to look at it all and, and come to their conclusions. And they said, if the benefits acquired in the religious exchange can be acquired elsewhere, religion becomes less useful. They added that when it comes to the role religion plays in establishing predictability and control in society, the power and order emanating from God can be outsourced to the government. Well, I mean, that's a pretty—that really puts God in sort of this very weak position, you know, as if, well, if I don't need to get my uh, daily— uh, sustenance from God, then I don't, you know, I don't need God in my life. Well, uh, that's a very shallow view, of course, and, uh, and an incorrect one. And it does make me think of, you know, God warning Israel when they went into the promised land, you know, he said, look, don't, you know, when you are blessed, when you do have these blessings, don't forget, uh, don't forget about him. Don't forget to obey him. It's easy to start to think that, you know, we have what we need. Uh, we're rich and increased with goods, don't need God, everything's taken care of. Uh, that's just the, the way people tend to think, and this survey shows that. And uh, But, of course, that's not the case at all. Obviously, people do need God, and that's when we look at the problems in the world, it's because of a lack of God and uh, God's truth being uh, known and implemented. And there's a really great new Key of David program that's coming up this weekend, and it it really gets to the heart of, of quite a few issues, the division in the United States uh, and, and the erosion of religion. And those two things are very much related. Uh, the program is titled The Religion of Washington and Lincoln. Uh, 
George Washington and Abraham Lincoln changed the course of American history through righteous leadership. Learn the source of their strength and how you too can draw from it. Next on The Key of David with Gerald Flurry. And it talks about President George Washington and Abraham Lincoln, our two greatest presidents probably, many would, uh, many would uh, say. And they knew, especially the founding fathers, and then Abraham Lincoln really, really thought about it during the Civil War and relied upon uh, a lot of what they had written and taught. Just the fact that, that a nation has to be built on the, the two principles of religion and morality especially when it's a nation that has a constitution that allows a lot of freedoms like the United States has. There are a lot of freedoms, but if those freedoms aren't governed and the people in that system aren't governed by religion and morality, well, then they'll abuse the freedoms and corrupt themselves. Adams, who followed in Washington's footsteps, said, Our constitution was made only for a moral and a religious people. Well, what, how about that? Our Constitution was made only for a, for a religious and a moral people. In other words, listen, the Constitution, just if you just look at the Constitution, it lets you do practically anything. But these men knew that you have to have some kind of a restraint, or this, this Constitution would never work. And religion and morality was what they said we must have, or the Constitution will collapse. And we see a lot of that happening before our eyes, don't we? And then also there's a lot of division. And Abraham Lincoln, you know, quoted Christ, saying that a house divided against itself cannot stand. And he was, of course, facing the Civil War at that time. But he says, now look, we're, we're too proud to pray to the God that made us or created us, he said. It behooves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power to confess our national sins. Wow! You mean a president is talking to those people like that? Well, I don't even hear ministers, generally speaking, talking like that today, do you? He says, we have to confess our national sins. Another quote, and pray for clemency, for forgiveness. And then Congress went on to declare a day of fasting and prayer that God would heal the nation. Will we go that route today? Will we follow George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and, and go to God to heal our nation? And first confess our sins. Well, look, it's our own history. I'm, I'm not even talking to you from the Bible. I'm talking to you from, about our own history. The greatest history you could imagine, if you really understand it, and understand why these two presidents were so great. There was a reason why they were so great. And it goes beyond human ingenuity by a long margin. He said, we have to humble ourselves before Him and pray for His mercy, to pray that we may be spared further punishment, though most justly deserved. Wow! You talk about correcting His people and Himself. Could America do this today? Could Britain do it? 
Could the Jewish state do it? Who could do this today? Listen to these beautiful words. Lincoln stated, Unless the great God who assisted President Washington shall be with me and aid me, I must fail. And the same omniscient mind, that almighty arm that directed and protected him, shall guide and support me, I shall not fail. Let us pray that God of our fathers may not forsake us now. In other words, he said, If I follow Washington's example, I shall not fail. And he didn't. Will we follow Washington's example and Abraham Lincoln's example? Abraham Lincoln didn't go out attacking the opposition party, the Democrats. No, he didn't. He said, We, all of us, must confess our national sins and humble ourselves and, and not be too proud to pray before the God that created us. Now, if we really look at this closely, I tell you, you can begin to see how we can solve our problems. And the only way to solve them, frankly, the only way. Have we forgotten God? Oh, how could we not believe that today? So much more so than in the time of Abraham Lincoln, because the people would listen to him when he talked that way to them. I don't think our people today would probably even listen to that without a lot of laughter and perhaps scornful repartee or whatever they might think. And here we are today with a lot of division in the United States, religion and morality definitely being uh, corrupted, and a lot of people turning away from religion in general, uh, or turning to false religion, as happens a lot of times too, but just turning away from any sort of uh, religion even, because they think, well, we just need the bigger government. We just need the government to step in and take care of health care. We need the government to step in and uh, take care of the social welfare programs. And really, it's going towards communism. You know, we'll talk about socialism, which leads to communism, of course. And then you have a communist state where there is no religion, because the religion is the state. It's the, it's the government. And that's not, that's not a free people then anymore that are living in that type of a situation. So it's a really uh, interesting report here from the Miami Herald. They're reporting on this, uh, these findings, government versus God. People are less religious when government is bigger, research says. And, uh, and then it ties into this Key of David program coming up this weekend here on KPCG that uh, you don't want to miss. And, of course, it'll be on television uh, this weekend, and also uh, at thetrumpet.com, you can watch the video there as well. Really important program on the religion of uh, Washington and Lincoln. One last note today is uh, from thetrumpet.com. Make sure you stop and check out the top story. Is France leading Europe into Syria? That's by Brent Noctegall, host of Watch Jerusalem. And he says, Macron's participation in strikes against Assad might herald a new era of European intervention in Syria. So Syria continues to be just really a hot spot and a lot of terrible things happening there. And it's been going on for quite a few years now. I forget exactly off the top of my head. I think it was about, about seven years or so that that battle's been going on, give or take. 
and uh, a lot of deaths and, of course, chemical attacks, just horrible things. And then even I saw a story just a couple of days ago from the U.K. There was people out there protesting the uh, U.K.'s participation in strikes against Syria, and they were chanting you know, typical things about no war and no strikes against Syria and things like that. And I just thought, well, why aren't you protesting Syria? Why aren't you protesting chemical attacks against children? I mean, if, if nobody steps up and does anything, then they'll just continue on with what they're doing. Not not that the U.S. has had a solution to it and they haven't done it, you know, too much, but um, at least there's been some response. And, uh, of course, there'll be, there'll be more response uh, moving forward, as, uh, as Brent Nachgall talks about here in thetrumpet.com. But still, just see, I, just some people's thinking just doesn't make sense. And nobody wants to see war. Or nobody wants to see any sort of killing. But at the same time, uh, if somebody doesn't step up and stop somebody like Assad, then he just continues to run over, you know, people. And, of course, he's supported by Russia and, and uh, has a lot of support there. But... It is uh, just interesting to see people uh, protesting an attack to try to stop the the violence that's being perpetrated against uh, just even children. Amazing. So anyway, that's uh, there's, there's a lot of controversy about that. But a great, great write-up there today at thetrumpet.com is France leading Europe into Syria. And also make sure you listen for the Trumpet Daily Radio Show today. Richard Palmer talking uh, about uh, some uh, developments over in China and some of those areas. Make sure you listen for the Trumpet Daily Radio Show and also the Key of David program coming up here in just a bit on KPCG. That's all that we have for today on this edition of Trumpet Radio Live. Thanks for being with us here on 101.3 KPCG. And uh, have a great rest of your day. Thanks for spending some time with us. We'll talk to you again tomorrow. listening to Trumpet Radio 101.3 KPCG